When you get a moment, you could take a Bible and turn it to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, as, you're, as you're going there, let me just take an opportunity to talk about something that I love, and that is Operation Christmas Child. Uh, Operation is in full swing. Uh, if you stop by the welcome desk, uh, either before church or after church, there's a, there's a bunch of boxes there. You can take a shoe box and uh, go out. Uh, my family and I spent a little time yesterday uh, with one of, these, one of these pamphlets. This is also here. You choose boy or girl, which age range you want, and you just go through and fill it up with, uh, with gifts and toys uh, that you think would bless, uh, bless someone who received it. Uh, I really encourage you. We have the next couple of weeks. I think we have until uh, November 23rd. So it's as simple as this. You grab, grab a box, take one from your house. You can take one from here. We have them for you. Uh, you go and spend a little bit of time shopping and, and scheming and thinking of putting fun things uh, inside of it. You can bring it right back here and we'll take care of the rest. But I would love for us to, to serve and bless children in that way. Uh, I encourage you to, to take a peek at it. That's Operation Christmas Child. And it is... Uh, it is operational. It's going. Acts chapter 6 is, uh, is where we're at. Uh, is, it our, is it Acts chapter 6 already? Like we're in November, right? Anybody notice that? Anyone notice? Uh, the way that I notice that the fall has come upon us is the fact that my, my head feels five pounds heavier than normal from allergies. Uh, I, the first time today I noticed uh, outside it looks like, you know that like faint yellow, just, is that pollen? Is that what that is? I don't know what it is, but my sinuses hate it. Uh, so it's, but it is, it's, it's November, right? We've had a couple of chilly little mornings, we're, we're moving on. And that means that we've already been for a couple of months walking through the book of Acts. If you're a guest here, uh, we're in the middle of a series. It's a, it's a common practice at a church. We want to we wanna start in books of the Bible and walk through them. Uh, it helps to make sure that we're hitting the whole counsel of God, that we're not just picking hobby horses, because I have hobby horses and I would love to feed them, and then they would get fat, and we don't want fat horses, right? We want to take the Word of God as it comes. And so that's our common practice, and we've gone through five full chapters now, right? Five full chapters, and uh, we're going to pick up in the first verse of Acts chapter 6. Before I begin reading, uh, I want you to note, uh, I want you to note the complexity that's getting introduced to the church at this point. That's what we're going to see, complexity, because the church has been growing. The church has been growing, and there's going to be complexity. That's what we'll look for. If you want, there's a Bible right in front of you. You could grab if you don't have one. This is the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. First verse. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Oh God, we long, uh, we long for the history to be written of our church, of this church family, that we could look back and say many became obedient to the faith. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for the faith once delivered to the saints. We thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. We long to sit under that truth now. Give us the kind of humility that we need to be broken recipients of your word. Give us the kind of insight and wisdom we need to discern how to apply these things to our lives. Give us the courage it's going to take, God, to walk in faithfulness to your word. Help us to not be like those who deceive themselves. They hear your word, but they hear only and do not do. 
God, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this body. I thank you for this family. I thank you for moments to come together under the Word of God. What a gift it is, God. You are a speaking God, not a silent God. You are not far off from any, but you have determined and desired that we might grope for you and seek you. And when we seek, we find solid words, a foundation, life to us. And may we never operate in such a way as to regard your word with disdain or neglect. Give me wisdom, protect these moments. God, I pray that I could be of service to your people. And we ask, God, that as we sit under your word, that you'd use these moments to pour out your Holy Spirit. Spirit, move in us. Make us like Jesus Christ as we encounter him in the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a controversial thing to be a growing church, you know that? A lot of people think that this is sort of an American thing. It's certainly a human thing to want influence, to want impact, right? And you, can, you don't have to look very far to find an example of a growing or a big church that has all of the trappings of celebrity, all of the complications of self-importance maybe, all the institutional barriers... Like, I thought this was my church, not the DMV, right? Go to this line. Left-handed people with a last name starting in O bring a casserole, right? Right-handed people, dessert. Because that just big, just mega church. Maybe this is an American problem where we just love things, love things huge, right? Some controversy in being a growing church. A big church can be a controversial kind of church, But we cannot avoid the fact that when we drop down into Acts over and over and over again, do you notice all the times that when we get a sneak peek, when Luke starts to tell the story of this church, he cannot help but describe a growing church? It's because faithfulness to God, most often, we we should expect that faithfulness to God can bring about healthy growth. That's what we see, isn't it? I want to start with a couple comments about growth because it's out of church growth that the complexity and the problem, the conflict that, we're gonna, that we just read about takes place. It's right in the context of God bringing growth to the church. Six times already, at least six times already in the book of Acts, we find Luke commenting on numbers, commenting on the fact that they were growing. 3,000 added to their number. Disciples added day by day. At least 5,000 men And just last chapter, Acts 5.14, right? More than ever, disciples are being added to their number. There's so much going on here that the beginning of Acts chapter 6 reads almost a little bit like like a storytelling sort of once upon a time kind of moment. Like Luke sat down and he's moved along by the Holy Spirit and he says, what needs to be recorded? How do I give a picture of this movement of God through His Spirit? He's thinking to himself, is it this time when they did healings or that time? Which prison sentence do we detail? And so he, he drops in here in the midst of a growing church. Now in these days, and right away he goes again, when the disciples were increasing in number. I think we get it by now, right? The church is growing. It's healthy. And I want you to note something from that because church growth can be a trap. It can very much be a trap. And I want to commit right from the start that anyone in here who could give a massive rant about being a numbers and noses kind of, or a a nickels and noses kind of a church, anyone who could give a great rant about that, I would be right there. Like, I will high-five you all the way to heaven about about the dangers of being a big church. But I want you to note the fact that Luke never shies away from it. Do you see that? Luke never shies. If there was something inherently more spiritual or more holy about being a small group, a little huddled group, he maybe would have been shy about it. Sort of mumbled his way through. There's a bunch of people. I don't know. Who knows these days, right? He names the number so many different times. It seems like there's an intention of God to tell us a few things. And here's a few comments that I would want to make about this particular aspect of church growth. The moment that we're at in Acts. And this is, this is one of them. 
I believe that we should take from this that faithfulness to God should come along with a natural expectation of growth. Do you believe that? We don't demand anything from God and we don't claim anything from God. We don't pray to Him and say, God, if we do these things, press vending machine, outcome converts, right? Next week, if that was the case, then what are we doing? Like next week, we should choose like a thousand converts this week, right? We've been pressing the wrong buttons if that's the way that it works, right? We don't demand anything from God, but it seems like faithfulness to God We're not a church that's going to be about numbers, but we are going to be about faithfulness. And faithfulness to proclaim Jesus should result in healthy growth. I think that's one of the expectations that we find in Acts, right? That's what's happening. This is happening all over the world. Ten of the 11 largest churches in the world are in South Korea or in Korea. There are pockets of the world where growth is happening exponentially in the church. And I think what Luke is trying to say is that where the Spirit of God moves, right? Where the Spirit of God moves, growth occurs. This this should be something we sort of expect. It does not mean we hold it in a closed fist and shake it at God when it doesn't happen at the speed we want. And sometimes there are seasons of dry land, right? Everyone goes through those. But I think the reason Luke records this is because faithfulness should come with an expectation of God bringing increase. What did Paul say? Plant the seed, Apollos is in there, and their water and their seed and their water and their seed, but God causes growth, right? Second thing I think we can figure out from a growing church that we're finding now in these days, this is a, the story of the moment. It is not inherently more or less holy to be a part of a small or a bigger church. And this is going to be important because in a moment I'm going to talk about church preference and size and relationships and those sorts of things. But I do not believe that the text is supposed to tell us that somehow the apostles have missed it, that they are inherently less holy now than they were when they were 120. They weren't longing for the good old days, right? They were looking back, like, remember when we didn't sin? It was so great. It was just 150 of us. It is not inherently more or less holy to be a part of any given church, one size or another. That does not mean, and the reason I say this, it does not mean that we do not have preferences about the kind of church that we want to be a part of, right? Everyone has preferences. And you could probably think back in your life right now to being part of different church moments and thinking to yourself, oh, this was pleasant. I liked that. This was good. You should joyfully rejoice and say, God, thank you for the moment I'm in if it happens to match your preference. But here's the potential that we do all of the time we begin to moralize, over-spiritualize, and become legalists about the exact moment and precise way that we interact both with God and the people of God. The apostles were no less holy because God was bringing healthy growth to their church. I think we need to be careful about that. There's different seasons of life, seasons of churches. I'm trying to set the context here to show you that growth is healthy Because in a moment, I'm going to show you all the underbelly, the gross underbelly of growth. And it might be tempting if we don't just establish a baseline that God is bringing growth. If we don't establish the baseline, you might be able to sit back with your arms crossed and be like, see, see, I told you, getting too big for your britches. The widows are being neglected, right? Am I the only one who could do this sort of thing? You don't use britches, nobody? Get there. It's a good word, right? So I want to establish the fact. And then basically this, the church growth can, can give us a couple of amazing opportunities, but it also increasingly creates complications. It means that when the Spirit of God brings growth in the church of God, He also at the same time calls upon the people of God to serve in more specific and unique ways. When the Spirit of God moves to bring growth, especially if he brings converts, right, into the church. It gets messy. Things get messy. And the more people, right, churches have more opinions than people, right, about any given, that's usually what happens. You gather a crowd, there's amazing opportunities, but there's amazing complexities. And what I want you to see, what I want you to wrestle with and think about is when the Spirit of God moves to bring growth, he is at the same time stirring and establishing and bringing out and calling out the gifts of the people in the church to meet those needs. That's the context that we're in. Now, in these days, the disciples were increasing in 
number. What happens? An obstacle. A problem. Anyone have a problem-free life? No one? Had a couple this week? No matter how good things are going, right? Every history, every real-life story has problems. It's one of the reasons that I love the Bible. It does not Photoshop anything, right? If you want to commend to put a tome together, life in the early church, a commendation of Jesus the Christ, right? If you're going to establish that, you might want to Photoshop some stuff, right? You might say to someone like, oh, you want to know who I am? Just follow my Instagram, right? Like, brownies again. You know what I mean? Like, your life could be a little bit sort of just like glossed over, But this is a real place with real people, and a church is full of people who have conflict and dissensions. And not only that, but we're going to see in a moment, we're going to have have things, you're going to neglect things. You're just going to make mistakes. This is at least the third category of obstacles that's been introduced to the church. And Luke doesn't have any problem bringing them out. This is exactly what's taking place. These are... These are not Photoshop, not makeup over. This is pimple on picture day, right here, right? That's what this is. In all of its glory, the first obstacle to the church was persecution, opposition. You could call it persecution, right? When, a, when an official, when a government person is bringing you in front of everyone and saying, stop teaching. Not only stop teaching, I will beat you if you keep teaching. Getting thrown in prison, that's persecution, that's opposition, Right? And so that's one major obstacle to the church. We've seen that. We've been through that. I think at least three instances already in the first five chapters we've gone through. The second obstacle, the second problem, sometimes with the health of a church going on, is just good old-fashioned sin, right? That's a terrible introduction for sin. Never mind. Bad old-fashioned sin, right? Just bad old-fashioned sin, that's all. Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit, They determine in the pride of their own heart. They look around. They see people, maybe Barnabas specifically. Wow, Barnabas is getting props for being a generous guy. Look at this. Look at this guy. They contrive a deed in their heart to sell property, to keep back from some for themselves, but also to get all the praise and adulation that comes with being a generous couple. Sin is an obstacle to the church. People have said to me in the past, it must be so peaceful, it must be so great to work for a church. No. It's not. There's people there, right? right? There's people there. And those people, we not, only, we not only ask them and not only assume they're messy, we invite them to share their messiness. The, the way to enter a church is to describe how unbelievably needy and broken and messy you are. There's no other door. Sure, we could build a church where there's no sin, right? We could build a church like that. It wouldn't be a church, right? There's no, other, there's no other way to come to Jesus except through brokenness. And so sin, of course, is going to come in. That's, what, that's what's in the church, sinners. This is a third sort of separate category. This becomes areas of neglect. This is a basically a good old-fashioned dissension. That's a good way to say good old-fashioned. A dissension. There's conflict. There's conflict in the church. And the conflict is described very, very quickly. So there's persecution first, then there's sin, and now there's just a conflict. Growth has made the church come to the points where there is conflict in the way that people are interacting with one another. Of course there's sin involved, but this is a conflict, a leadership dilemma. So I want to introduce, there's at least two major issues in this conflict. Two major issues in this conflict. The first is obvious. We just read it. Widows are being neglected. Widows are being neglected. And in order to bring attention to this issue of widows being neglected, it says that the Hellenists, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. Okay, now the wording of that is is intriguing to me. The word word complaint from Greek is a funny word. It's gungasmos, like that. And it just sort of sounds like complaining. You know what I mean? It just kind of feels like that. There's some murmuring going on. You know what I mean? Like, some murmuring. I would say to you that one of the best ways to think about and to understand the inner workings of any institution, a church included, is to listen to the murmuring. Right? Listen to the murmuring. 
There will be murmuring because people are messy and there is murmuring in this early church. No one's going to put this, the guy with the microphone, like me, like, come to Four Oaks and Forty. We're a community of Christians who love one another. You know what I mean? Like, no one's going to show you the murmuring from the mic. It's not going to be in the document. This is a good tip for um, anything. You go and you have a job interview, you really like it, you think, I don't know if I want to move places. You talk to the boss, the boss isn't going to tell you, oh, here's the deal. I'm terrible administratively and people complain about me all the time. (laughs) Right? You need to find ways to listen to the murmuring of the place. It's also one of the reasons why the Bible pulls no punches and calls that most of the time, a lot of the time, this kind of murmuring, murmuring is more destructive than you think. It's why labels like gossip and complaining and do so without grumbling, Scripture says. This word complaint, that's another way that the New Testament describes it. You can just write right there in the margin of your Bible, just grumbling. That's what this is. So this comes up and every leader in every organization, no matter how big or how small, has to deal with this sort of thing. There's conflict, there's dissension. And it's a major issue. It's not minor. There are widows being neglected. And widows being neglected would be an issue in and of itself, right? This is a problem. A mandate of the people of God is to care for the vulnerable. Do you know that? You know this is a non-optional characteristic of the church to care for actively, care for the vulnerable. Widows are obviously a particular demographic, right? Those who are very vulnerable in that culture specifically, probably do not have a way to own land, do not have a way to have a job. Their husband is gone. They were extremely, extremely vulnerable. But we also know that Jesus came, one of the missions that he gave us, non-negotiable, is to care for the poor. Remember the moment he stands up in front of the temple and he says, hand me the scroll. Right? I imagine that's what Jesus said. I don't know what he said. He probably had a deeper voice. Wouldn't that be weird? Hand me the scroll. Right? Like, <laughs> Jesus, that can't be Jesus, right? So he gets the scroll, right? He gets the scroll and he opens it up. And what does he turn to? He turns to Isaiah 61. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The vulnerable, the outcast, the destitute are not an optional aspect of care for the church. This is supposed to be part and parcel to who we are. You have been unspeakable objects of mercy. Do you know that? You are not here in a part of the church out of your strength. It's out of unbelievable abject weakness that you're here. And we should never forget that. That's why we have a mandate from Scripture to care for the vulnerable. And they are being neglected in this passage. Of course the leaders are going to listen. James 1.27, I know you know this. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure and undefiled before God. Visit orphans, care for widows in their affliction. And they're dropping the ball. They're dropping the ball. These widows are being neglected. A complaint comes up, and that would be an issue in and of itself, except for the fact that there's a part two to this conflict that means that it's escalated a little bit more, and it shows the grotesque nature of this conflict in full color. And that's this fact. There seems to be a racial element to the neglect. Imagine if you were in charge of a program that gave out checks to help care for uh, child care work for people who needed to go out and work outside the home. People who are low income, it's your job, you're caring for this program, you're organizing it, right? You're sending out the checks, you're making sure that people can get out to work if they need to, and someone comes to you. Some computer tech jockey, right? He's like, and he comes to you and he says, like, there's been a problem. Some of the checks have not gone out. Somebody called me. They said there's been neglect and they can't pay for their childcare work. And this person had to quit her job and there's something happening here. Now, as a leader, you might have a certain response to that. Namely, like, it's broken. Let's fix it. What happened? It takes on a whole different angle if the next day the guy comes back and says, hey, listen, this problem is bigger than we thought. There's a bunch of neglect happening. The checks aren't going out. But I want to let you know. Everything works perfectly except for one zip code. And not only that, but within the zip code, every single person received their check except for one ethnicity. It seems like this is a systemic neglect 
not because it's broken and we couldn't figure out the lines and the computer messed up. This is intentional. There is an ethnocentric prejudice going on here. And that's what's introduced. That's the full weight of this problem. This is not... This is not a boring introduction into Leadership 101. How do we get the dishes washed and served? And where does the food go? There is a deep-seated rift between. That's why it says the complaint came from the Hellenists. It is their widows. It is a particular kind of widow that's being neglected. Now, the Hellenists were a minority, a minority Greek-speaking Jewish people. These are people who had moved into Jerusalem and have come to settle there who did not speak the dialect, the common dominant language of the Jews in Jerusalem, which would have been Aramaic. There were natural and ongoing divisions and obstacles, hindrances to these groups of people playing nice. We find out in verse 9 of Acts chapter 6, right letter, that it seems like in Judaism even, they may have had different synagogues even. It says that someone came from a synagogue of the freedmen, and then it lists a bunch of Greek places after that. Not only in this particular moment were these Greek-speaking Jews being, being discriminated against, but it seems like through the rest of Acts, note the number of times you see small little references to Greek people, to Greek-speaking people, and it's never positive. One of the charges brought against brought against uh, Paul before he's brought in front of the, of the rulers of the age. One of the charges brought by the leaders is, oh yeah, and this guy, he brought those Greek-speaking people into the temple. This is the grotesque, sad reality that humans, when and where they will, often discriminate. They just do. There's never been a single society since the founding of fire, right, that there, this hasn't been the norm. I'm sure some of it is language, some of it is culture, some of it is food, some of it is understanding. But no matter what, it's something that needs to be dealt with. Have you ever been in a, in a situation, in a scenario where you don't know the dominant language of the culture? Have you been there? You felt how uncomfortable it is? Have you thought to yourself, what are the first things you'd do if you had to move into that place? You might round up some English speakers right, and hang out with them. This is just the way that life has been for these particular groups of people. But I want you to note something. This is completely and utterly unacceptable in Christ. Have we owned that? Have we felt the full weight of that? Many of us do not understand how big a deal this is. The gospel does not just speak to individual forgiveness of, sin, of sins. It speaks to the way that we interact with all of those created in the image of God. And we need to put a foot down, a, a stamp on the table, a fist to the pulpit, whatever we need to do to say that ethnocentricity, prejudice, is unequivocally wrong. And the leaders say to themselves, this is a big deal. We need to do something. We need to organize. We need to figure out how do we meet this particular need. So it's a big conflict. It's a big conflict. And in order to solve this problem, I want you to know what the apostles do. In order to solve this problem, the first thing they do is they gather everyone together. They gather everyone together and they begin to organize the organism. That's what they do. They begin to organize the organism. Church history, all the smart people, all the folks with fancy hats and robes and scholars, right? They've described the church in a couple of ways throughout history, basically as being both organism, you know what I mean by that, living, alive, breathing, active, moving, free, an association of willing people alive in Christ, no hierarchy, no tasks, no responsibilities, no buildings. There's a beautiful movement of the Spirit of God that connects people, right? And in some sense, the church is organism. And so there's a lot of people who have a natural, a natural proclivity, a preference toward that way. They might even say, that's the only way church can be real. All this stuff about meeting in a place and a building and pews and a, and, a, and a pastor, all this set of stuff, they just say that it's all wrong. Church needs to be all organism, just whatever the Spirit of God does. But in addition to organism, church history has shown us, and I think we're going to see a major turning point right here 
is that that organism is also organized. Paul tells the church in Corinth to do all things in right and proper order. The universe screams out order to us, right? Every day you wake up, your heart does not decide, which way should I pump blood today? So whichever way I feel, up, down, left, right, right? We are an ordered universe, and healthy organisms can grow in organization. There is a relationship between, you can imagine it, there's a great book written a few years back between, called The Trellis and the Vine. There are people who love building trellis. That's the thing that like, you put against the side of a wall that helps vine, vine, vines. I was going to say vine branches. Vines grow up it, right? And of course, it's tempting to get, a, get sort of carried away with trellis building, right? If you came across someone and they had a 37-foot high trellis that stretched a mile long, and they were just so excited. You wouldn't believe it. Look at this. this look at these patterns. As far as you see, they're straight to a millimeter, right? Eventually, someone might come and say, like, isn't this for a vine? <laughs> like, where's, the vi- where's the life? Something's supposed to grow on this thing, right? And in the same way, you take your vine and you just throw it out on the grass and say, climb! Climb, vine! The vine may say to you, like, could you give me, could you give me a little structure? Could you give me a little organized life here to grow on? They go hand in hand. And what happens here with the apostles is they see the Spirit of God moving, but they also say that when the Spirit of God moves, He calls people and gives them tasks and asks them to serve so that the organism can flourish. I hope that you see that. I hope it makes sense. It's both things. This does not mean that this is the first time they've organized. Somehow they figured out the numbers. Have you ever thought about that at Pentecost? Like, who is the guy? And 3,000 were added to their number in that day. Somebody giving out stickers? <laughs> like, what was it? like, and you're a Christian, Christian, right? Like, how do they, I don't know how they know the number. They were organized enough to know exactly who it was. It says that, it says day by day and week by week, they were going to the temple. Apparently, someone was telling them like, hey, bros, we're meeting at the ninth hour at Solomon's Portico. You bring the casserole, right? Or something. There was organized enough at least to meet there. They had to have been organized enough to have conversations about who was selling what, who had a need, how are they distributing the goods. There's probably a treasurer of sorts. A lot of times we read back in the Acts, especially if we have a bent towards just like, whatever the Spirit does, man. Just whatever the Spirit does. We could read the beginning of Acts and just say like, we need to be like this, just free, just nothing. It's impossible to read it without saying, okay, someone had some organization here. And now here at this point, we find that there is a clear commissioning and a clear demonstration of leadership taking place. The apostles gather the, to- gather the full number of the disciples. I don't know what that means. Does that mean 30,000 plus people? That's probably what the church was at this point. 30,000 plus people? I don't know. It's a huge crowd. And they say to them, I want you to know, we begin to learn two things. We learn about the apostles, and we also learn about what we're going to call sort of proto-deacons. Here's what they say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Ooh. (laughs) It kind of seems like, hmm. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But they say to the people, therefore brothers, brethren is how you could read that, the men and women that are gathered, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Here's a good reality and understanding of the way that the church should always be organized. The source... The source and the foundation of any influence, any teaching, any authority, any leadership needs to be sourced in the people of the church. The apostles did not come and say, you will do what we say. There is wisdom here because there's a real accountability. There's an understanding of the way life works, and that is basically this principle. It is difficult for you to be loved by someone you do not trust. You will have a difficult time being served by someone you do not trust. Has anyone experienced this? And so the apostles go to the people and they say, you must know who serves in this crowd, who is full of the Spirit. The source of their commissioning, the source of their authority, the foundation of the trust that the people handed off to these men always must come from the people of the church. Not handed down, not heavy-handed, from the church. 
This is just the way that it works. You're never going to go to a place where you, do, where you think to yourself, like, I have no connection to leaders there. I don't like them. They're the worst. None of you will go out this week and invite a bunch of people to come and worship with us at Midtown. It's great. Now, the guy who teaches is a total liar and a scam. But it's otherwise, otherwise it's, a, it's a great church, right? No one does that. There's a sense in which there needs to be a mutual accountability, an obligation of people to say, God, it seems like you're moving through and you've given us these gifts in these men so that we could learn the Word of God together. But it's never detached. It's never detached from the affirmation of the people. That is the way that eldering works. It comes, it bubbles up out of the people. And in the same way, Leaders need to always understand that there's an accountability there, and that's exactly how this thing functions. I need grace, right? When I stand and open this thing every week, like, I need grace. I'm going to sin because I'm a sinner. But you need to, we need to have a basic understanding that I need to operate and live life in front of you that basically says this, I will fail you, but it's in my heart not to fail you. Does that make sense? This is a trust there's an accountability here. I will fail you, but it's in my heart not to fail you, to be faithful. It's in my heart to, to take this honor and privilege to open the Word of God and to walk faithfully in it. So the men call the crowd and say, put forth these guys. There's a full list of qualifications for what we might call deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You could go there and maybe just mark it or something and look at it later. But I want you to note from this, we call this proto-deacons because the word deacons is not used here. The only place the diakonos, the Greek word for serving, shows up is in the first verse when it talks about the daily distribution. We're not even sure what that means, but that's the only sort of hint in this passage. The other reason we say proto-deacons is because these guys, these dudes who get put forward and affirmed and laid hands on, they take on unbelievable tasks of evangelism and preaching and ministry that goes beyond what it seems like deacons do the rest of the New Testament. They needed to be full of the Spirit. Now, every Christian has the Holy Spirit, right? You are not in Christ, apart from the fact that God has sent His Spirit to you to apply the work of Jesus to your life. That's how you're made alive. The Spirit dwells in you. This is another one of the ways and one of the times in Acts where we believe that there's a sense of the filling of the Spirit that is something that we should pursue. We are positionally, positionally in Christ. Positionally, we have a guaranteed deposit of the Holy Spirit. But in experience, the Bible calls us to seek after a filling of the Holy Spirit. Of course, these men were Christians, but it seems like what the apostles are saying is, look around and find those men who by, by experience and by example are not drunk with wine, but they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's these kind of dudes. They need wisdom. At, the t- at this time, anyway, they're all men, seven men. I think that the, the testimony of the rest of the New Testament shows that there becomes deacons and deaconesses at different points, or at least women who serve in that kind of role. Sometime later, it it shows up. Here, it's seven men. They're full of the Spirit, and they are appointed by the apostles. One last thing that I think is really intriguing about this particular group of guys, they're Greek-speaking. They're Greek-speaking. That's smart, right? That's smart. Why? What was one of the major parts of the problem? It was the Greek-speaking Jews whose widows were being neglected, And so from that very group, the apostles say, we want to commission and appoint, we want to give authority to people you trust and people you know. Not guys coming over and saying like, I don't know your language, I don't know your problems, I don't know your history, but guys who are Greek speaking. All these names, Greek names. I want you to, I want to say the last thing about what these guys are doing. And that's essentially this. It's tempting in a moment like this for us to look at it and say like, oh, they did the unspiritual work. And the apostles, who we're going to talk about just for a second in a moment, they're doing the real spiritual work. So there's unspiritual work and there's spiritual work. And I want to tell you that that is a complete misunderstanding and a refusal to apply the gospel in all the places that the gospel is needed to be applied. The story of the kingdom of God is that he is redeeming all things. He is making all things new. Flesh 
and trees and water and soil and dirt. There is no such thing. We need to settle this in our hearts and our minds. There is no such thing as unspiritual work. No such thing. They are not given a task that is unspiritual because the gospel speaks into every sphere of life. If you have been given something for your hand to do, that work is intensely spiritual. It is to be done in a way that not not only helps to picture, but ushers in the kind of grace that the kingdom of God brings. You know what that means? That means that moms, tomorrow when you wake up and you wipe a face and you change a diaper, that God is calling you to an unbelievably spiritual task. And whether or not you do all that and then you find someone to care for your children beautifully and then if you have a job and you go off to work or if that's all you do, it is spiritual work. It means that tomorrow in the most lame moment of your job, can you think about it right now? Like today's Sunday, everybody's chilling out like, Watch the box or whatever, right? You're excited. Tomorrow, can you picture it? What's the most lame moment? Whatever you're doing, you're filing, you're this or whatever. God is calling you to spiritual work. It matters because the gospel touches all aspects of life. And we need this or else it becomes this sort of understanding of this sort of class of Christianity where we compartmentalize That we need to be holy in all the things that we're doing when it seems churchy, and the rest of the time it doesn't really matter. The whole world's just just going to be burned up anyway. Who cares? No, God is making all things new. He's making all things new, and we need to settle that. We need to settle that in our hearts. Accountants and students and moms and dads, your work It can be gospel work. We're not Gnostics. There's an entire group of people who have been condemned as heretics in the history of the church because they believed that all they needed to do was be right spiritually and their bodies didn't matter. And so they would pray and they would be saved and they would confess their sins and then the next day they would would have unbelievable amounts of sinning with their body because it was just our physical bodies. All kinds of sexual sin, gluttony, and the like. So that's these proto-deacons. Last comment, I want to make a point about the health of the church and the role of the apostles. The apostles understand the enormity of the task that they're given. It is not a small thing for them to have a ministry of the Word of God and to pray. It is not a small thing. They do not look at what it takes to preach the Word of God and think to themselves, I can do that in my spare time. Yeah, let me just multitask this thing. That's totally fine. I'll just, whenever I can, I'll just throw a little talk together a little sermonette, right? The preaching of the Word of God, leading people and praying and being spiritually minded and connecting all of life to Jesus is a whole heart, whole life experience. And this is what the apostles knew. There's been a lot of sermons written in the world, right? Like I could totally just do whatever I wanted during the week, start a little small business, organize some things or whatever, and then just be like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to teach tomorrow. The growth of the church brought complexities, and this is the third potential obstacle to the expansion of the church, right? This is not the task. This is not the call. This is neither safe for me nor safe for you. There is no such thing as a healthy church who has given up the preaching of the Word of God. Do you know how tempting it is to do a million things that are wonderful and beautiful and good? And forget the fact that what we're called to do is to set apart people to say, would you remind us, would you stir us up through leadership of what God has said? What has God promised? Tell me the promises again. Show me the way to the living Word of God again. Bring me to the Word. And the moment that we neglect to set people apart to do that task, we have ceased being on mission in what God has called us to be as a church. We could do so many good things that I want to do. I want to do these things. I want to care for the vulnerable and the poor and start ministries that reach into people who have actual needs. But we could build an organization that meets needs better than the United Way. And if we lose the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, if we lose God Himself in prayer, wrestling with Him, saying, I want more of you, then we have lost it. We are not a healthy church. We are on our way to decline. There will be a demise. And the apostles knew this. It took their whole being. This is what their calling was. It would have been a good thing 
It would have been a good thing. One of the marks of wisdom is to find out good things and to neglect those for the best thing. What has God called you to do? It is a gift to be able to teach the Word of God and pastor a church where the church says, here's what we want you to do. Lance, for a big chunk of your week, would you, would you just live in, in the Bible? Would you live in the Bible and, then, and help us walk through it? This, these verses, this idea, this thought is one of the reasons we did the little booklet thing this fall. We did the booklet because I'm diving into Acts in the spring, right? I'm reading through it and I'm saying, God, what does it look like for me to be faithful in what you've called me to do? Well, here's what it looks like. Teach the Word of God. Teach, teach, teach the Word of God. They commit themselves to this. Look what Paul says to Timothy. Look what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is instructions to a young pastor, a guy new in the ministry. He's probably inexperienced. He doesn't know leadership. He doesn't know what to do when the Hellenists rise up with a complaint against the Hebrews, right? There's probably a million areas of organizational leadership that he does not know because he's a total noob, right? Look what Paul says to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And this, of course, is the final reason why the apostles not wasn't just their calling. It was because this is the design of God. That where the word of God is multiplied, the people of God increase. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me say two things as, we're, as we wrap up before I pray for you. One, I want you to note the complexities that begin to come in. The sort of delineations, the sort of specialization that happens as the church grows. One of the things that I've loved, I just want to confess this to you, one of the things that I've loved over this last year, Sarah and I jumped in, we launched, made services at 5 o'clock at night, there was like 80 of us in here, right? I have loved, we've given ourselves to wanting to pastor people that we know. Do you know how many times over the last 12 months that I'm preaching, and if you forced me to, if you stopped me mid-sentence, that I could probably name 95% of the people in the room? I love that. I love it with every fiber of my being. I love being part of the people, right? I love being able to look around and, and say, not only do I know your names, but like you're from Melbourne and Miami and this is what you're going through. We love that. But there is an increase in complexity that happens as the church grows that means you have to start praying and saying, God, what does this mean? How does this work? Who are you calling to take on different tasks and roles? And it probably seemed to some that the apostles were being unbelievably cold-hearted and just distant and wrong in this moment. And I felt the pull of that, right? It's much different to have a, have a room of 80 people and know their names and preach to them. It's much different. Sarah and I have said, God, help us to be open. We want to be known. We want to be known and we want to love well, right? It's much different when it's 240 people. We're right at that spot where it's like this complexity is coming in and there's all these, all these feelings of like, how do we do this? And so there's a confession to make, right? A confession to make like, we're going to fail in this, and we're going to have some Acts 6 moments, right? I don't doubt that God has blessed and given us mercy through this first year, but like six months from now, and like write our history, and there became a complaint of the 30-somethings from the neglect of X, Y, and Z, right? This will happen, and, and there's ways that it's like I, I would love to know every person individually. It just, it just cannot happen at a certain point. I, I like names and faces, and I still think I do an okay job. Like I could, I could sweep over, and there'd only be a few moments to be like, buddy, <laughs> guy. You know what I mean? Like there would be that, of course. But can we be in this together? Can we pray and ask God, how do you, it seems like it's healthy growth. I love that people are meeting Jesus, and they're coming because they want to worship and be a part of the church. These are great things. They're good things, but it doesn't mean the complexity doesn't come. Can we be in this together? Can we commit to not overly spiritualize one moment in time? Let's not have a group or a faction of people that five years from now is looking back and saying, March 2014, that was it. That was the golden month. 
That's when God was really... If you weren't a part of Midtown then, right, you missed out. Let's ask God together. Holy Spirit, as you bring growth, would you identify and help us to delineate and specialize in ways that are helpful? We're right at that moment. Every church leadership and growth book says that like, oh, the moment you start to approach 200 people, it's going to get really crazy and one guy can't do it and you need to do all this kind of stuff and it makes me, makes me sweat like reading it. I think like, well, then that should have been like months ago. I'm like, what do we do? We need to pray and say, God, help us to organize well. The last thing is I want to speak to you some grace and some patience in your calling you might feel called to do something with such certainty like the apostles. I've been called to the ministry of the word and to prayer, right? And yet a majority of your time is not being given over to that thing. Let me pray for you in just a moment for patience. Do you know that in this particular moment of life, what you are called to is exactly where God has you? You know that, right? At least for tomorrow. Like, have you committed to something? Do you have a job? Do you have a contract? Are you in school? Are you doing... Do that thing spiritually. Do that thing well. Do that thing with a mind to say, God, how can I picture the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, the renewing of all things in my work? And the trick, of course, is at the same time to maybe be dreaming and saying, God, what are you calling me to long term? Maybe it's something different. Well, let's never exchange a longing for something different in the future for faithfulness today. Is that a fair thing? Let's never exchange a discontent about the future for a neglect of faithfulness today. And I mean that as a church-wide thing. I mean that for myself personally, and I mean it for, for you. Let's pray and ask God to help us to be faithful. God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have designed, you've designed the boundaries of our habitation. Not only have you given us a place to live, but you designed it that we might grope after you, seek after